earthworms are starting to lose weight because they're eating so many microplastics now. I am always digging up little shreds of clear plastic, little bits of black plastic bags. Um, I just can't escape them. How oh, are you? Welcome to the Environmental Podcast, Age of Plastic, with me, Andrea Fox, a person who knew nothing about how to save the planet, but heck, I wanted to try. I'm also a broadcaster who loves a chat, and now here we are, 65 episodes in. This podcast is named after the scourge of the modern world, that single-use plastic, but we cover every environmental topic that you can think of. Each episode, a brand new guest showing how they think we can be more sustainable in our lives. Across all these episodes, loads of amazing guests covering everything from climate activism to plastic-free cooking to more ethical finance. And with a great guest today, we are getting green-fingered. Move over, Alan Titchmarsh. We're the author of a brand new book, Sally Nex's book, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. The steps you can take to help combat climate change. Sally worked as a journalist for the BBC for 15 years. Since leaving, she devoted herself to horticulture. She's got a planting design diploma. She's qualified to RHS Level 3. And in 2019, she won an environmental award for a series of articles she wrote about going plastic-free in her garden. Her book, which is out now, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way, explores how we can all be more sustainable and make small changes to the outside space we have to make a difference to climate change. Now, as well as chatting plastic-free gardening, making the right choices with your green space to make sure it's a carbon sink and not adding to your carbon footprint. Plus, we talk about why plastic in soil is as bad as plastic in our oceans and if we can really grow all of our own food. And talking trees, or how trees really do talk to each other, the absolute gossips. Here's Sally next on the Age of Plastic podcast. Sally, you've got such a wealth of experience in the BBC. Uh, then you decided to go and head out into the garden and that's led down this path to this brilliant book that we're talking about now, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. I've I've read it. Thank you so much for that. So useful, I think, for all levels, all spaces. As I've mentioned, I have a balcony, which is incredibly windy, especially today. But it's got inspiring things in there on flooring, plants, uh, water saving, sustainable sheds, plastic-free compost, and you learn what a fedge is as well. So first things first, Sally next, thank you so much for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. You're very welcome. It's lovely to be here. And we're going to talk about this brilliant book. But first up, there's so many great stats in it as well. Gardeners apparently will spend £10,000 in their lifetime on their garden. So it's Mm -hmm. quite a good opportunity, right, to try and spend more wisely and do things more sustainably, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the kind of ways in which you can make your garden a little bit greener are in the choices that you make at the garden centre. Because I think you know we're all used to just kind of charting into the garden centre and getting swept away by. I like that one. I like that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. And before you know it, you've got a full trolley and it's overflowing with stuff. And yeah, we all we've all been there. But. The problem is that uh, a lot of the things that you find in the garden centre are perhaps not um, all that sustainable and certainly not that great for the wider environment. Um, I mean, you know, it's difficult because I don't want to diss garden centres. They're fantastic. I go into garden centres quite regularly, um, but I tend to choose really, really carefully. Um, For example, if you're buying plants, bear in mind that your plant, first of all, comes in a plastic pot, which you have to bring home and somehow or other dispose of. Uh, secondly, it's almost certainly, unless it's very clearly labelled, it's grown in peat-based compost. Mm. And uh, peat bogs are one of our most valuable, precious resources, amazing carbon sinks, wonderful environments, fantastic ecosystems. Um, and uh, they're being 
ripped up basically and used in compost to grow things like the plants that we that we buy yeah. um also unless you've got a very enlightened garden center near you um it's likely to have been sprayed with pesticides and so on and so on and so on so things like buying plants um even when you're buying sort of bigger equipment like if you're buying a watering can choose the metal one not the plastic one you know choose the um choose the biodegradable pots not the plastic pots choose the wooden or bamboo plant labels not the plastic ones you know it's it's all about the choices that you make it's so so important because i think sometimes in the shopping that we do for the garden that's where our carbon footprint can really rack up fast and this is one of the things that struck me about this book i thought well um, i think most people would think well, the garden is an amazing place that I'm helping the planet because I have a garden. But is it possible to maybe make changes or do things in our garden which actually are bad for the environment rather than good for the environment? It is, but I don't want to sort of um, take away from that idea that the garden is really good for the environment. Our gardens are the one place where we can make the most difference because we have full control over it. You know, we can do what we want in our gardens. So if you garden for the wider environment, make your garden into a little mini carbon sink. I mean, people tend to think that their gardens are too tiny. They don't make any difference. What am I doing in my little backyard? Yeah, that's what I would assume, right? Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. Actually, there are about, give or take a bit, a million acres of gardens in the UK alone. And that's not even counting any of the gardens across the rest of the world. That is a huge area of land. So it's one of those cases where if everybody does their little bit, we can all make a massive, massive difference. And the lovely thing about gardens is that they're really concentrated microcosms of plants and soil. And it's, of course, an undeveloped space, you know, really lovely green space. So we've got lots and lots of opportunities there to uh, maximise the amount of carbon we can sequester by planting trees and looking after the soil and that kind of thing. Loads of really, really good things that we can do for the environment. But the difficulty comes when we start cancelling out all of that good by doing things which are harmful for the environment. So, for example, mowing with petrol mowers, um, mowing at all, actually, or certainly mowing with... You're very, you're very, I don't want to say anti-lawn, but having read the book, (laughs) lawns, mowers, they don't, they get a short shrift. (laughs) I do do have a lawn, just before before we go any further. I do have a lawn. In fact, I have quite a lot of my garden is laid down to grass, but that's not quite a lawn in the way that I think most people think of as a lawn. I have a little circle in front of, uh, you know, the place, basically the place where I sit and have my my picnics or whatever. That's a little circle, which I mow every couple of weeks or so. And then I have paths and that little circle is quite small. Um, And I have paths which go through the rest of my garden and the rest of my garden is left to grow much, much longer. Some bits that are closer to the house, I mow maybe every four weeks or so. Those are quite small patches, actually, but but, um, every four weeks or so gives you lots of dandelions and daisies and clover all of those full of lovely nectar brings in the bees and the butterflies really brings your garden to life actually it's just lovely um and because you're growing therefore slightly bigger slightly deeper rooted plants then you're sequestering more carbon because you've got more biomass there and so on now right at the back of the garden i've left a whole area just to grow wild and I don't mow it at all. It's lovely because I hate mowing. And it means that I just stay away from, stay away from there completely for the whole year. 
And then towards the end of the summer, as long as it had the chance to set seed and to do all of that, I cut it right the way back, rake off the top growth, compost the top growth, and then all the seeds, while you're doing that, all the seeds drop back down into the ground and reseed. The thing you get with that very long grass, it looks scruffy compared to what most people think of as a garden A garden should be. You know, we want mm. pretty meadows and all this. Let go of those ideas because they're the enemy of environmentally friendly practices. If you can let your grass grow long and just see what turns up, it's going to be the stuff that's most suited to growing there anyway. So we're talking about things like cow parsley and hogweed and uh, campion sometimes turns up in my garden. Um, I've got oxide daisies, you know, those kinds of uh, wildflowers. Um, and they do turn up. And what you get when you have the very long grass is perhaps a little bit less nectar for the um, bees, but you get a much better biodiversity of plants. And that's just as important, actually, as well as loads of biomass, very deep, very fibrous roots that are drawing carbon all the time out of the air and into the ground and a wonderful little carbon sink right there. And your book goes into so much detail. There's so many things. We could we could spend a whole episode just talking about any one of the things that's in this book, honestly. And there's so much to consider. And I think sometimes people, especially if they've got a big garden, they pave over it because they're like, that's too much effort. But you are very softly, softly leave things alone approach. The idea of this book is not to send people out to the garden centre and then send them out and dig up the garden because that's actually a, a bad way to start in a low carbon garden, right? Yeah. I kept feeling a little bit guilty all the time while I was writing the book because I'm a very keen gardener and I'm writing largely, you know, when I write my articles and things, I'm writing for very keen gardeners. But the overall message is kind of don't garden so much <laughs> because really the more that you can leave alone your environment, whether that's, you know, your borders or your um, log piles or, uh, you know, even, even your plants, you know, try not to over primp and preen them you know what i mean the more that you can let things alone the more that wildlife will come in you'll increase the biomass in your garden you'll um you'll increase the amount of uh, soil life that you have for example that's actually actively good for your plants because over 80 percent of the carbon that your garden contains is actually in the soil not in the plants at all it's in the soil underneath your feet i think that's and amazing i was really surprised by this Absolutely. And you know, all those wriggly things. I mean, most of them, to be honest, they're so small, we can't even see them. But the more life there is in your soil, the more your plants connect through their roots via that life in lots of very complicated relationships to the nutrients that are in the soil, and the better they grow. I mean, it's good gardening, actually, even though it feels like you're not doing anything, because all you're doing, for example, is mulching with lots of garden compost and leaving it there. Uh, you're actually helping your plants much more than you would do if you started digging around or digging in your compost or anything like that. Don't do any of that. Just let on the top and let the soil do its work. Let it do its thing. Lazy gardeners listening right now absolutely rejoice. And I um, suppose this is one of the things that I think um, I've been pondering. Uh, And you mentioned like the connection of roots. Is it true that trees actually do talk or plants actually talk to each other? Is that a thing? they can talk to each other. Isn't wow. that amazing? I mean, it just it blows your mind, doesn't it? Basically, there are these things underneath the ground called mycorrhizal fungi. You might have heard of them. If you leave your soil for any length of time, particularly if it's rich, and then you come back to it after a few months and you sort of rootle around in it, what you'll find is it looks like it's mouldy. There's lots of sort of grey, white stuff all over it, like little threads all over it. That's the mycorrhizal fungi. And you know your soil is healthy 
when you've got lots of those little white threads in the topsoil because uh, they they spread for miles and miles. Uh, there's some, oh, I, I don't really know the statistic, but they, they literally spread, you know, the area of acres and acres. Wow. Um, and what they'll do in a forest, for example, is they uh, have a relationship via bacteria and so on with the roots of your plants, of trees, for example. They will connect. It's like a little sort of um, connecting wire between the roots of, your, of, of a plant and nutrients. So it's like a symbiotic relationship. Um, so they, they allow trees and plants to feed. But what they also do is because they stretch over such long distances, and they're, they're like great filaments, like spider's webs almost, so they, they can go in all sorts of different directions. And they will link that tree over there through the ground with another tree somewhere else. And the trees have been proven to send chemicals through these networks of mycorrhizal fungi. So when one tree is being attacked by an outbreak of aphids, let's say, something like that, they'll emit chemicals to defend themselves. And they will also send those chemicals through the mycorrhizal fungi system to other trees. Those trees will pick up the chemicals and before they've been attacked, they'll up the amounts of those defensive chemicals in their own systems. So they're telling each other, watch out, there are aphids in the area, hurry up and get your defences up, and they actually do it. It's amazing. Like little tree emails. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I love they that. They called it the, uh, hang on a bit, the Wood Wide Web. How about that? <laughs> love that. I love that someone's already branded that. I love that. The oh, wide yes. web. And I mean, our gardeners and gar- the gardening world, as you've seen it, you've been in it for so long now. Um, do you think they've always been aware of climate change? Is this quite a new thing? Or are gardeners at the forefront? Have they always known about this? Have they been seeing well, the changes through the years? They have and they haven't. I think that gardeners have always known that they were far more in touch with nature than most people tend to be. Because we've got our hands in the earth all the time. We're out in the rain. You know, we know how, for example, climate change affects the way that things grow. We know that much better than most people do. Um, So we are very much in touch with the earth in connection with nature. Um, And uh, and I think that we've also, you know, we've had movements like the organic gardening movement, which has been in place since the 1950s, 1960s. It's been going for a very long time. Um, And that has been very much talking about how we shouldn't use so many chemicals on when we're growing food and, um, you know, how we should garden Um, using much more natural materials. Now that um, has been around for a very long time. But I think what a lot of people don't realise is that, for example, organic gardening can use peat. You know, organic gardeners can use peat. Peat is an organic material because all organic means is actually just comes from something that used to be living. Um, Pelleted poultry manure from battery farms can be labelled organic. So... (sighs) It's a very troublesome, for me, organic is a very troublesome term. If you're buying things that you think, if you want to be organic, then the things to look for are, um, certainly look for the soil association label on the packet, because that will tell you that there are no actual chemicals used in the making of that of, of that product. Um, so that's a really good way to check that there is nothing in there that shouldn't be in there. Um, but also, you know, just do your research, really. Do your homework. Think about things like, you know, how were those chickens raised? Um, if, it, if, if it's labelled soil, soil association, then things like poultry manure should be all right. But um, things like compost, you know, make sure that it's peat-free, you know, know mm-hmm. what you're talking about. That level of awareness, the level of awareness about things like peat-free, about using plastic in the garden, um, all of those sorts of issues have really come up relatively recently. 
I mean, I know that when I started to reduce the amount of plastic in my garden, it was actually quite a long time before Blue Planet 2, I'll, I'll have you know. Well done, you. I was a bit ahead of the curve. Um, but I actually just heard a lecture from a lady who um, spent her days, you know, monitoring the Pacific guys. This was all oh, about eight or nine years ago now, so quite a long time ago. But it, I can remember the feeling of having the wool pulled from my eyes and realising how much plastic was around us. And the first thing I started to do completely privately on my own in my back garden was to try and remove the plastic from my garden to get it out and to garden without plastic. And um, I know at the time I was the only person doing that. Wow, because I'm really? very, very plugged into the gardening world and I know what people were doing. And at that time, to my knowledge, anyway, there may have been people who were doing that in private that I didn't know about, but pretty much I was certainly the only person who was writing about it for sure. And uh, I ended up doing a, a, a series of articles, um, one every month for a year, um, which won me award. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I um, wrote that for The Garden, which is the RHS magazine. Um, and at the beginning of that year, Blue Planet 2 was aired. And by the end of it, everybody knew about plastic in gardening. And so it really, you know, it, it was something which um, came about very, very quickly, all of a sudden, I think the, there was um, the surveys nowadays show that two thirds of gardeners want reduced plastic in the products that they buy. Wow. That was not even a thing even two or three years ago. So that's, it really has changed change. massively in a mm. very short amount of time. And gardeners, as I say, we are very in touch with climate change. We're very in touch with nature. And so as soon as people become aware, I don't think anybody was deliberately doing things to harm the environment. They just were not aware. And as soon as that awareness was raised, People didn't, you know, they just wanted to change uh, the way that they garden very quickly. And so sustainable gardening became something which I think, you know, any thinking gardener wants to wants to embrace now. It's amazing to see that change. And like you say, I mean, we're talking about low carbon gardens. That does include using less plastic. Uh, I think your book says 2050 carbon emissions could be three billion tonnes from plastic. So do you think it's actually possible then to garden without plastic at all? Um, Mostly. Okay. Uh, the thing is, it's a slightly difficult subject because, of course, the trouble is that as soon as you start to sort of, you know, look at the whole issue, you realise you've already got quite a lot of plastic in your garden and you don't want to be throwing it away. You don't want to get, get rid of it because obviously it's got a lot of life in it yet. You don't want to be putting plastic in landfill if it doesn't have to be in there. So the first kind of thing is really to use the plastic that you've got for as long as its lifespan allows you to. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the first step in a way. Um, having said that, there are limits to that. I think that, you know, if you use plastic pots, for example, until they're cracking and, you know, they've really come to the end of their useful life, that's too late by then because they're starting to shed little tiny fragments of plastic directly into the ground. And that's obviously a really bad thing. So I would always say use your plastic that you've got for a long time. But as soon as it starts to look a bit old, take it down to a garden centre that, that recycles plastic. There are a few of them around. They take a bit of finding, but you can. Yeah. So, um, so what, you know, but when you replace your plastic in your garden, replace it with something that's not plastic. Mm. And that is where the kind of really innovative stuff comes in. Like, um, well, I now uh, sow seeds all the way from sowing seed all the way up to planting out. Uh, and I grow vegetables, so I sow a lot of seeds. Um, and, uh, and I do all of that without any plastic at all now. It's very easy. And in fact, actually, the thing that really surprised me was I was looking for a like-for-like substitute, so something that would work as well as plastic. But what I found was something that was better. 
because my seedlings perform better in newspaper pots and they prefer wooden seed trays. I, I never realised this was going to happen, but That's because strange, isn't it? it really is. Mm. In a plastic pot, seedlings, when they get to any size, the roots start going round and round and round and it, you know, they get potted. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And they, they can't breathe. And uh, so you, I mean, they'll, they'll recover from that because plants are quite resilient, but that takes time. If you're growing in newspaper and cardboard, the roots grow straight out the sides. And what happens is that once they run out of kind of compost and cardboard and they reach the air, they become what's called air pruned. So they die back naturally. Uh, so it's a perfectly natural process. But the point is that the, those roots are growing straight out, which is how they would do so in nature. Mm. As soon as you plant them out, they just carry on. They don't have any recovering to do. So they establish much more quickly and they grow much more happily. They, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I don't actually, I'll make a little confession here. Having just told you, you should reuse your pots for as long as possible. I try not to use my plastic pots anymore. They're all stacked up in the garage. One of these days, I shall have to take them for recycling, I think. I keep trying to find homes for them, but everybody's got too many, haven't they? Yeah. So, oh, it's terrible. So I'm going to have to think something to do with them because I don't really want to carry on reusing them. I've found something better. Yeah, completely. And yeah, I'm going to have to find somewhere to get rid of ours. We've only got a balcony and we've got absolutely tons because we tried to grow uh, vegetables. The aphids all got them. I'm going to try fruit this year, Sally. Um, But you mentioned like plastic in, you know, everyone knows it's plastic is bad in soil. But I think that is, again, something that people are only just starting to come around to. We know it's bad in the ocean, but it is just as detrimental if it's in our garden soil, right? Well, there was a piece of research that was done fairly recently which showed that uh, earthworms are starting to lose weight because they're eating so many microplastics now. Mm. The amount of pollution, in, of, of plastic pollution in the soil is as great a problem, I think, now as the amount in the oceans. We just don't see it. That's the trouble. Although I say we don't see it. I'm a professional gardener. For about half of my week, I do people's gardens. And so I'm, you know, rootling around in all sorts of people's kind of, you know, in veg beds and all that sort of stuff. One of these days, I'm going to pile up all the plastic that I dig out people's mm. gardens and just take a photograph of them at the end of the day. I am always digging up little shreds of clear plastic, little bits of black plastic bags, um, plant labels, you name it. Uh, it's, it's just horrible. And I just can't escape it. It's there all the time. If you want to find out your nearest plastic pot recycling area, Uh, head to the show notes for a little link on recyclenow.com okay coming up next week i think it's about time for a celebration don't you Uh, i'm going to be talking plastic free wine and how you can buy wine that actually helps the oceans with simon rolf from sea change more on that on the next episode of the age of plastic podcast i always think with all of this stuff it's about being aware of the impact of what you do i would not claim to be totally sustainable. I don't think anybody mm. is, actually. I mean, I am, I do all sorts of things in my garden which are less than sustainable, which are not, you know, uh, by the book, as it were. Um, and the difference is, though, I know when I'm not being sustainable. I'm informed about it. And so I know the impact of what I'm doing. And what I find is that as soon as you become informed about these things, what you start to think is, uh, I don't really like the fact that I'm having a bit of a bad impact on the environment here. How can I do this better? Yeah. Sometimes you can't do it better. Sometimes you're a bit constricted as to what you can do. Say if you have a very small garden or if you're gardening on a balcony, something like that. 
But I think the important thing is that everybody finds the little bit that they can do and does that. Yeah. Because if everybody did a little bit, we'd really make a difference. You don't need a few people doing everything perfectly and everybody else giving up. You need everybody doing just a little bit. And then I think you really start to make waves. You know? I, I can't believe that we've left it this far in our chat before I even ask about plants. Are there oh, yes. good and bad choices when it comes to low carbon gardening? Well, I hate the talk of good and bad things. Because yeah, it's a bit black and white, isn't it? Which, as yeah, we've just discussed, is not... Yeah. If you're growing plants, you're doing good, you mm. know? And so I, I think from that point of view, anything that you grow is going to add to the carbon content and the biomass of your garden. So it's going to be... And it's going to hopefully have a bit of nectar to it. It's, it's going to be um, adding to biodiversity. Lots and lots of good things about growing plants. If you want to increase the... Um, the carbon sequestration, the amount of carbon that your garden holds, plant a tree. That's the best, best, best thing you can do because trees root deep into the ground and roots, of course, sequester probably as much carbon as what's above the ground. Um, so they root deep into the ground. They've got lots of woody lignin, which is the stuff that can t- that, that really does lock up a lot of carbon. Um, and because they're simply big plants, they're sucking in all of that carbon dioxide from the air all the time. So they suck that in, they lock it in their trunks, and then they hold it there. And even when they're sort of dying and decaying, they're dying and decaying down into the soil, whether that's leaves or, you know, after they've dropped a branch or something like that. Incidentally, when your trees do either die or drop a branch, please don't burn it or take it down to the tip. It's just such a waste of all that good carbon, you know. Um, Much better, if it's a small enough branch, you can shred it and add it to the compost heap. Um, you can make them into log piles. Beetles and little wriggly things just love that, as do frogs and toads and other things that are good for your garden. Um, and also, you can just cut and cut the logs into lengths, and that's where the fedge comes in. Yes, I was going to say let's let's talk them. about the fedge that I mentioned <laughs> mentioned at the start because I mean I've got a balcony, but I am now wondering if we can get a fedge uh, around yeah, our yeah. metal balcony. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> The downstairs neighbours might be a little bit annoyed when bits start falling off. So explain how yes. to make a fedge for people who've got gardens. Okay, well, fedges are really for people with slightly large gardens, perhaps. I don't think they would work terribly well in urban gardens or in uh, suburban gardens even. Um, you need a, a slightly wilder end to your garden. So one of those kind of long, thin suburban gardens where you've got the sort of slightly wilder ends, those, those are great for fedges. Basically all it is, is um, a place to put your garden waste, really. It's a twin line of posts to hold long uh, twiggy prunings or um, you know branches or anything like that and you just stack all of those longer larger bits of garden waste into your fedge and eventually it all builds up and builds up until it's a great big heap really but kept neat because mm. of course it's inside this twin row of posts um, so what you end up with is a cross between a fence and a hedge. It's kind of neither one thing nor the other because it's not a hedge because it's not growing, although it's got living things in it, but it's not really a fence because it's not a boarded fence. So anyhow. Yeah, um, I was like, is it a living wall? But I was like, but it's kind of, they're not kind of not mainly, really things might be living in it. <laughs> it's got plenty of life in it Yes. because what you'll find is that it's colonised within days by all sorts of wildlife. Everything loves a fedge. Everything from hedgehogs down to frogs and toads down to stag beetles love them. You get you know colonies of stag beetles setting up into those sorts of um, environments. Um, you you can put all sorts of stuff in there from uh, like twiggy prunings to um, autumn leaves to uh, even sort of you know um, weeds and that kind of thing. Although 
probably best to avoid perennial weeds, but any of the, that kind of composty type waste as well, all of that can go in and it all kind of melts down into this kind of lovely, rotty, carbon-rich kind of mess. But it's all held in by the thicker logs that you've stacked up inside the post. As it rots down, you simply add more to the top. So it becomes a kind of very slow burn compost heap, really. It sounds perfect for my mum's garden, but is there anything that you recommend for people like me who've got a balcony? We have got trees in pots, but is there anything that's a sort of that we can try and help cut down carbon with our tiny little outside space? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, again, it's to do with uh, woody plants. If you want to um, absorb more carbon, grow something that's woody or grassy is the other thing. Those are really kind of machines for, for um, processing carbon dioxide. So anything like a shrub or particularly a burying shrub, I mean, there are lots of lovely burying shrubs um, that you can grow on balconies, things like skimmia, which are evergreen as well. And, you know, birds and things like that will absolutely love them. Um, also fruit, you can grow fruit trees in pots quite happily. Uh, so that gives you some fruit, which will also offset your trip to the uh, supermarket, because one of the lovely things about growing your own food is you offset your carbon emissions elsewhere by the whole kind of machine that produces our food. You can kind of step off that little merry-go-round and produce your own instead. Yeah. Um, so you can grow those on a balcony. There's lots of kinds of fruits that you can grow in a pot. Um, and uh, in terms of grasses, most grasses are also very, very happy in containers. And it's a lovely way, if you've got a, um, a, uh, a balcony, it's a lovely way to make yourself feel quite um, sort of surrounded, you know, in that lovely kind of jungly space where you've got like lots of towery kind of plants around you um yeah. so it makes you feel like you're in a garden even if you might not be yeah completely that's what i've been trying to do on our garden uh, in our balcony make it feel a bit more like a garden and you mentioned growing your own food um and how, how do you think it's possible really um for us to live on everything that we've grown our own i know you feel quite strongly about this and you've written about this before is it mm. possible for people with a garden or a balcony space to grow all their food and not need to hit the supermarket ever again Oh, on a balcony, I think that's a stretch. <laughs> a bit I mean, you have to be realistic with mm. what, you can, what you can achieve. Um, you can be self-sufficient in certain types of things, even if all you do have is a balcony. So, for example, uh, if all you've got is three roomy pots, say about um, 12 to 14 inches across, or what's that in new money, uh, about 30 centimetres across, something like that, 30 to 40 centimetres. Um, so you need three of them. Sow the first one with mixed baby leaf salads uh, one month. Then there's so the second month, second pot the second month, and the third pot the third month. So you've got three staggered pots. By the time you've sowed the third pot, your first pot will be ready to pick. So start cutting that. And then by the time you've finished eating that, and you know, it should give you several kind of harvests from the same, same pot. By the time you've finished eating that, your second pot should be just about ready to harvest. So you empty out your first pot, put some fresh compost in, re-sow it, go on to harvesting your second pot, by which time your third pot should be growing up. Anyway, you end up with this lovely kind of circle of bag salads. Yeah. And so you never, ever need to buy another bag of salad. Plastic bag of salad. That is such a good tip. And I think it, because the book is so wide ranging, you go into everything in so much detail, but it's really easy to kind of get through for budding gardeners. But um, I don't want anyone who doesn't have a lot of outside space to be put off because, like you say, there's so much you can do with the, the small spaces that you do have as well. Absolutely. So that's a great, that's it's a great little tip. not trying to do everything. I mean, trying to be self-sufficient from a balcony is, you know, in every all of your food then you know you can't do it and uh, the minimum amount of space for producing all of the fresh food that you might need 
is an allotment. And yes. that's an old fashioned allotment measurement of 10 rods as used to be. So that's about 70 feet by 30 feet, um, 250 square meters, which is quite a large area. Um, certainly it's about the size of most kind of, you know, suburban gardens, give or take a bit um, these days. Um, a lot of people have got gardens a lot smaller than that. You can use garden space very carefully and grow a lot of your fresh produce. Um, and obviously, if you have a garden that's the size of an allotment or bigger, then you might be able to aspire to self-sufficiency in vegetables. But of course, there's lots of other things that we have to mm. go to the supermarket for. So you're never going to not have to go to grocery shops, I guess, but not in this day and age anyway. But um, there is a lot you can do to take a lot of things off your shopping list, put it that yeah. way. That's such a good tip. And I, I was wondering as well, like money and time wise, if there's one thing that budding low carbon gardeners are listening to right now that you recommend they do. Something that doesn't cost too much and doesn't take up too much time. Yeah, well, I suppose like well, a lot of what you've said, I, I don't know why I said money and time rise, to be honest, because actually, like you say, it's a lot of leave what's there let nature do its work don't necessarily go down to the garden center and buy everything in yeah um so I suppose... well, as you said earlier i mean a lot of low carbon gardening is actually for lazy gardeners <laughs> and also cheapskates <laughs> because a lot of what you buy for a low carbon garden is second hand or you know bartered or all of those all of those kinds of things or you use what you've already got or you make it yourself and that's a much more environmentally friendly way of going about things and it doesn't cost anything. I mean, making stuff yourself, I guess that's not so lazy. You do have yeah. to spend a bit of time doing that and a, and a bit of effort and so on. Um, but on the other hand, you saved yourself a trip to the shops. So, <laughs> you know, that's all to the good. It's all, it's all working out in the wash. And you, you say trip to the shops as well. Um, I In the book as well, you say local is often best for lots of things. You mentioned secondhand equipment there as well. But in terms of looking for homegrown, are there any things that might be better to look further afield for possibly? Um, so uh, when you're talking about, you know, going and buying plants, mm. um, you don't have to do the garden centre model, actually. There are lots of other ways of getting hold of plenty of plants for your garden without having to go anywhere near uh, a plastic pot. Lots and lots of nurseries these days are selling bare root plants. It's the way that we used to buy them, because back in the kind of 1940s, 1950s, that kind of time, and of course earlier, um, we didn't have all the plastic pots and the garden centres and all that kind of thing. So what used to happen then was that people used to, well, it's usually the head gardener of the, of the sort of Victorian estate with, with, uh, with Lord and Lady so-and-so, used to go to uh, Chelsea and places like that. They used to go to the flower shows and the nurseries used to turn up at the flower shows and show off their latest kind of new, uh, newly bred kind of varieties and that kind of thing. And it was like a kind of a showcase, really. So you used to go around with a notebook and you used to write down all of the things that you saw that you wanted to grow in the garden the following year. And at the end of the day, you'd have this lovely long list. And then in the autumn, you would send that list in to the nurseries and you'd say, right, I'd like three of this and six of that and seven of that. And they would literally dig them up out of the ground, mm. put them in a box and send them to you. <laughs> so that is what we need to get back to. Yeah. It feels like a bit of delayed time. gratification. Yes, yes. Precisely. I think we've lost the art of delayed gratification. It's so much more exciting than going into a garden centre and just kind of, you know, it's all there and it's all, you know, it's just like splurge off you go. Much better to really think about what you really want to be growing. And you change your mind anyway half a dozen times through the summer. And then you get to autumn 
and you can go on the biggest shopping binge ever and buy hundreds of plants if you want to. Autumn is also a much better time to plant because at that time you've still got the warmth in the soil. It's usually quite damp. Lovely time to plant plants. In the middle of the summer, if you've gone to the garden centre in July, say, and bought a rose in a pot, that rose is really going to suffer because you're putting it into dry soil. You're going to have to carry on watering it all the way through the summer to, just to keep it alive, never mind growing. And it's got huge amounts of top growth and very little roots. So it's very ill-equipped to deal with the uh, demands of, a, of high summer. Mm. Whereas if you plant that same root, that same rose, bare root in November, it's dormant. So it's not trying to transpire through its leaves. All it's doing is growing roots during sort of milder spells in winter. So it'll spend all winter putting down a fantastic big old root system. So by the time spring comes around and it's got to produce leaves, it bursts into growth, got plenty of roots to support that growth, and it just gets away in no time. And it's a much, much happier plant. Needs less input from you as well in terms of water and fertiliser. And of course, that itself cuts your carbon footprint. Such a good tip to go to go back to some of the ways that we used to do things, I suppose. Like we say, delay that gratification. And I suppose you could pick up pack, pick up Sally's book, decide what you want and have a think about it in autumn. That's that's what we're saying to the we podcast. Are. Absolutely right. Make lists. I like lists. <laughs> love a, I love a list. Just a few more oh, questions yes. before I let you go, Sally. But lots of people in the pandemic have found a newfound or rekindled their love for their outside space or their garden. So I wondered what you thought in your experience means that we enjoy being in nature so much as humans? Oh, well, there's a thing called biophilia, which they don't entirely understand just yet, but it's the instinctive reaction that we have as human beings to the natural world, whether that's plants or the sunshine or birds and butterflies and bees and things like that. It's no coincidence that You know, one of the motivations behind people getting so worried about the drop in biodiversity and the uh, lack of pollinating insects is not really to do, I mean, it's partly, but it's not really to do with the fact that they pollinate a third of our crops and so we're going to run out of things to eat. I don't think people are quite so bothered about that. The thing I hear people talking about when they talk about this issue is, I don't see so many butterflies anymore. And that's what people get upset about Mm. because... People respond at such a gut level, I think, to that sort of uh, that sort of seeing that kind of thing, and um, and to gardens and to the open countryside, and um, it's been proven. There's so many studies now that show the effect that it has on your well-being, on your mood. Um, it lifts depression. It uh, helps people to recover from illness. It lowers your heart rate. It reduces the amount of stress hormones. So much good mm. comes from being out in a garden, just outside in nature. Um, and uh, you just can't put a price on that. I think it's it's something that's very instinctive. It goes back right to our roots as animals, if you like. Um, we, we kind of forget, we're so sophisticated these days, we forget that underneath it all, we're animals too. And we need nature. We need the natural world like we need food. I yeah. Think. Completely. I, I totally agree with that. Totally agree. Um, time for our last two important questions as well now, Sally. Now, I know this is going to be a difficult one, but we are lovers, not haters. You've managed to eradicate most of your plastic in your garden. Well done. But plastic is a useful item, maybe outside of the garden. So is there a favourite item in your life that it contains some plastic that you are really glad exists? Well... Like I say, I mean, I've, I've got rid of most of the plastic from my garden, but my garden still has plastic in it. And that's because, as you say, plastic is a hugely useful material and it's 
almost made for gardening really because it's waterproof it's it's uh you know it doesn't rot all of those kinds of things all the things that to be honest make it a bit of a pollutant are also things that work very well when you working with plants and, and water and soil so um some things in my garden i uh will always have that are plastic um i have to say though the one thing that i wouldn't be without which is kind of it's not completely plastic it's partly plastic is i have some lovely secateurs which I use nearly every day for all sorts of things I shouldn't Nothing use for, like cutting <laughs> and things like that. Most of them are, is metal, but they have plastic handles and they're lovely kind of shaped plastic handles that just fit my hand perfectly. They're lovely. I thought it would probably be something to do with the garden, to be honest, Sally. And yeah, I think that's completely allowed, completely allowed. Um, also, just one final question before I let you go. Your environmental hero, please, Sally. Oh, I have lots of environmental heroes. There are so many people that I think are doing so much good for um, bringing the garden into step, as it were, with the wider environment. Um, Fergus Garrett, who's the head gardener at Great Dixter, he's um, running Great Dixter very much along biodiverse, wildlife-friendly lines. He doesn't get a lot of publicity for it, actually, because it's not the kind of reason for the garden, as it were, but quietly, he's just getting on with it. He's got so many wonderful ideas. Um, there's a lady called Isabella Tree who's, um, who runs a uh, rewilding project at, at Net Estate down in Sussex. Yeah. And they are revolutionising anything that ever, anybody ever thought about how um, you can merge agriculture, horticulture and the wider environment and nature. And it's just revolutionary what she's doing. Um, but the one I keep coming back to is Professor Dave Goulson, who uh, is at Sussex University. Um, he's an academic. Um, but he's also a gardener, and even more important than that, he's a bug man. He loves his little <laughs> creepy crawlies. And so he kind of gardens for insects. He doesn't really do the kind of pretty flowers thing. I think he likes pretty flowers, as far as I'm aware. Don't we? Um, but he does love his garden, and it means that he's also very, very aware of how what he does in the garden affects the insects and the things that live around him. And he is a mine of information, He's always doing really useful things in his capacity as a scientist. So not so long ago, he went down to the garden centre and he bought uh, a selection of plants and he tested them all in a lab for the presence of pesticides. And at the time, nobody had really thought about garden plants as being uh, sprayed for pesticides. And he found that seven out of ten of these um, of these plants contained pesticides. Most of them contained a cocktail of pesticides and quite a few of them contained um, neonicotinoids which are now banned um, wow. that was before neonicotinoids were banned I should point out um, so they weren't at that time illegal but nonetheless you just think all of this stuff was on the plants that I buy and you just don't know and it's through scientists like that who are in touch with what we do in the garden who are able to to do these experiments which point out and actually prove and you know back it up with scientific proof what the impact is of what we do as well yeah some, I, I mean, I'd heard of Isabella, but some amazing names there. And like you say, it's it's everyone sort of doing their little bit and causing those little ripples, making the whole world a little bit more sustainable, including with this amazing book, which is out now, I should say, Sally Next, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. Uh, a fabulous book and such an amazing chat. I could talk to you all day, but you've got oh. to get back to that garden, haven't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, thank you so Absolutely. much for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. 
It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Here comes the science. Love that. Sorry if I sounded a little bit in the good old days at any point at the end there. You know I don't believe that. Sally Nex's book, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way, is out now on DK Books. If you want to know which compost is okay to use, which plants are the best for absorbing the most pollutants, how to cut out single-use plastic in your garden, then check out the brand new DK and RHS book written by Sally Nex, How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. It is out now. And Sally Nex is also the Nigella Lawson of compost recipes. If you want to uh, hear her homemade compost recipe, make sure you listen into to the episode at the end of this series, our little roundup for that. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a lovely review for a shout out like Alan, uh, Alan143. Great listen, very informative guests who know their stuff. Alan, I didn't think he meant me. Uh, leave a little review on Apple Podcasts. It does make me really delighted. I got really in my head about some of the audio uh, today. Um, I hope you still enjoyed the episode uh, despite that. We're all recording remotely. It's a pandemic. I just thought Sally was a great guest and really appreciate having some time with her time for this episode's eco life hack now this is hopefully something useful that you can utilize right now we did mention the recycling of those plastic plant pots on today's episode according to recycle now the black ones are going to have to stay in your shed or in your cupboard they are not recyclable because the machines can't see them against the black plastic of the conveyor belt if you want to find out your nearest plastic pot recycling area Uh, head to the show notes for a little link on recyclenow.com okay coming up next week i think it's about time for a celebration don't you Uh, i'm going to be talking plastic free wine and how you can buy wine that actually helps the oceans with simon rolf from sea change more on that on the next episode of the age of plastic podcast so make sure you hit subscribe wherever you are listening i'm off to grow a fruit tree see you next time